Hey guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech ecosystem with Matthew Stober, who is CEO at Abzina. So welcome back. Hope you're having a good day and it's uh, great to see you again. So who have I got in store for you today? Well, today, uh, Matt, who joins me, is a really interesting character with a fabulous kind of background. And he joined uh, Abzina from his role at Istari Oncology, where he served as president and CEO for two years. He has over 30 years of experience at large multinational pharma organizations in manufacturing operational roles. Matt has previously held senior positions at Novartis Vaccines, Smith & Nephew, and Huspira, where he served as Global Head of Operations, President of Operations, and Senior VP of Operations, respectively. His deep and extensive ops experience has been consolidated from positions at companies including GSK, Merck, Pfizer. Matt holds various board positions, including current appointments at Xfax Technology, Story Oncology, and Castlevax. He holds a BS in chemical engineering from Villanova University in Pennsylvania in the US. He really is quite a veteran of the sector and he's made his way back into the CDMO space. If you like today's episode, please share it with a colleague. And if you're out and about in the next few months, uh, maybe say hi to me at an event. And don't forget to subscribe so you get these episodes direct to your phone. Enjoy. Hey, Matt. Welcome to Molecule to Market. Thanks for having me today, Roman. Really appreciate the opportunity. Well, listen, I uh, appreciate you coming on, especially with such a beautiful background. Some of you won't be able to see it, but in the uh, promotional shot, you can see a gorgeous, beautiful palm tree behind uh, behind Matt. I, I'm very, very jealous. Uh, but nevertheless, it's fantastic to have you here. I'm really sh- excited for you to share your story, Matt, with our listener. So let's start at the start. You know, Give us a bit of an overview of you and how you uh, found your way into the sector and ultimately got to where you are today. Uh, it was really quite interesting in advance uh, of recording today's show when I looked at your LinkedIn profile and did a bit of stalking. I had to go through uh, 22 positions, which is quite an extensive background that you have over the last few decades. And so if you can give us the summary version and milestones of your journey, that would be fantastic. Yeah, happy to. So started as a, as a chemical engineer. I actually thought I wanted to go into medicine. Um, and, you know, one of the things going into chemical engineering, I thought, you know, engineering teaches you to solve problems and medicine's a lot about solving problems and, and sort of got into university and realized I wasn't sure I wanted to stay in school that long. So started to look around and think about what I wanted to do coming out of school and and just really got excited about getting into pharmaceuticals and drug development. Had some opportunities early in my career to go to work for some amazing companies. Started off with Pfizer and and then went on to, to Merck working in process development. We had incredible leaders that, that I learned from in those companies. The CEO at Merck at the time was was just an innovator. It was back in the day when when Merck was really cranking out a lot of of new innovative 
medicines and and uh, spent a good stretch there in process development, doing product development in R&D underneath a guy named Barry Buckland, and then followed that product into a, a brand new facility and started that up um, and, and launched that product. And then really grew up there at, at Merck. And what I would say about that experience is you know, had a lot of opportunities to what I call fill my tool bag. When I when I talk to young engineers coming out of school, you know, one of the things I tell them is, you know, stay on the steep part of the learning curve and don't worry so much about moving up in your career. And so really had an opportunity to work in, you know, places that, that, that were very different, research, manufacturing, working on the shop floor with folks that you know, we're, we're making the product and, and then running an engineering group and working in both biologics and then moving on and going into sterile fill finish and the drug product side. And so by what I call filling my tool bag and learning a lot early and not being so worried about moving up, you know, I find a lot of young folks are, are very interested in advancing their career really quickly I got a big, broad base of experience early on, and and that served me really well later as I did start to move up in my career. You know, I went on to SmithKline Beecham and fixed a significant FDA issue for them. Again, great learning experience. SmithKline became GSK, ran a biologics manufacturing operation for them where their R&D portfolio fell over. And again, what I started to learn is taking really challenging assignments where the organization has big problems. Some people shy away from those. I really leaned into those and found that I learned a lot more in what I would say somewhat crisis situations where, you know, there was a significant FDA issue or there was a significant cost issue or in the biologics case at GSK, the R&D portfolio had fallen over. And we were basically tasked with either close the brand new plant that you just built or go find a way to fill it. And that's where I really got my first contract manufacturing experience. And we went out and this was back when Big Pharma really wasn't uh, excited about sharing capacity with each other. They, they didn't do as much of that. And so we went out and, and did a number of contracts with other big pharma and some small pharma companies and filled the plant and were able to turn it into quite a profitable business. But probably more importantly for GSK was that we were able to get everybody trained and get the facility up and running and ready for the GSK portfolio when it did come along. And so then I had a, a really unique opportunity present itself, got recruited out of, of GSK to go run Novartis vaccines. Um, Novartis had just acquired Chiron. They had some really significant challenges again with, with capacity, and they needed to be able to make more of many of the vaccines that they were producing. They had some older facilities that really needed to be turned around, both from a quality and operations perspective. And that was really my first global job. We had facilities in India and Europe. We was really spending a lot of time moving around the globe. We were we were doing some business development acquisitions in China. We were we were doing some work in Brazil to build up capabilities there. And so so really got terrific global experience and got to sit on an executive team 
with some amazing people. Your Grindhart was the the CEO of the vaccines business. Got a chance to work with people like Ralph Clemens and Reno Rapoli, Brigitte De Silva, and just when I look back at at the people that I was around on that leadership team, both within the vaccines business, but also in the broader Novartis organization, I really just learned an awful lot about how to be an enterprise leader beyond a functional expert in terms of how to drive a business forward and how to put systems in place to really make that happen. After that, I, uh, you know, I had an opportunity at J&J with a colleague who I had worked for previously. They also acquired a a vaccines business, spent some time there doing that and and running Phil Finish for for the J&J team, and then got headhunted out of there for, um, by a gentleman named Mike Ball. Um, Mike was the new CEO at Hospira. If you remember back then, Hospira had a, uh, a number of their facilities were under FDA warning letter. Their share price had fallen fairly significantly. The FDA had gotten very aggressive about generic drug manufacturers and and the quality standards that 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 they had and unfortunately you know a lot of that aggressiveness caused companies to move a lot of the generics manufacturing offshore and and we're we're seeing the downside of that now in the political landscape with a lot of our generic products being manufactured in places like India and China we don't have good control of the drug supply chain anymore. And, and that's a really serious issue that needs to be addressed on the on the political side of things. That said, we, we turned the Hospira business around, really turned it into a very profitable outcome. And, and Pfizer ended up acquiring Hospira sort of four and a half years afterwards. We, we really got, got the operation running, got a number of the facilities renovated, Brought in an amazing team, had some some terrific folks working with me, and again worked with an incredible executive team team there. And I then decided to do something a little different. One of the board members came to me and said, "Hey, uh, after the Pfizer acquisition, um, one of our board members came and said, "Hey, um, I've got a friend who's in the medical device space. I know you don't know anything about med device, but but this could be an opportunity for you to." really helped this organization out. And I went to Smith and Nephew, different challenges there, more supply chain oriented, really, really cool, innovative device business. And so did that for four or five years. And then sort of stepped back and said, you know, I've worked for a lot of big companies and it's been a super interesting journey, learned a ton from all of these bigger organizations but really wanted to do something that was more innovative. And at the time, unfortunately, my father came down with cancer. He passed away from cancer, which ultimately spread to his brain. And I had this opportunity to go start up a company called Astari Oncology. It was it was kind of up and, and going. It had been established and be, was being run with a few consultants we went in and, and raised uh, almost $100 million, stood up an oncology organization of about 50 people where we were working on glioblastoma, which is a terrible disease, not a lot of options for patients, especially in the recurrent GBM setting. We're using a modified polio virus 
to treat recurrent GBM. We have trials that are, Astari has trials that are continuing to go on in, in that space in, in uh, partnership with Duke University. Just really exciting, innovative technology where I was, I was very highly motivated based on the oncology field and just watching what my father had, had gone through as he battled cancer and then ultimately passed. And, you know, frankly, that brings me to Abzina. And, you know, one of the reasons why I joined Abzina as the C- CEO was their work in the ADC space and, and these antibody drug conjugates are really innovative opportunities for small biotech, large pharma to make a really big difference from an oncology standpoint. And, you know, that was one of the reasons why I was so excited when when I was approached for this opportunity to be CEO at Abzina is just based on the, the type of work that we're doing is is something that that really makes a difference for patients. And I get to do it with a whole bunch of different companies that are working on all kinds of of really, really intriguing science that can move the needle in the oncology space. That's a great summary. And, you know, you know, the your three decades or so in the sector, you've had some absolutely incredible roles. And, uh, you know, with all the businesses that you've mentioned, you know, Merck, Pfizer, JSK, J&J, uh, you know, you really have a, an incredible roster of, of big clients kind of on your on your resume, in addition, of course, to the more kind of recent work that you've done. Uh, one thing that definitely seems to run through your veins, Matt, certainly an observation from my perspective, is this kind of ability to problem solve. Um, and that comes very very clearly to your experience uh, and something that you mentioned uh, that really caught my attention I made a bit of a note was kind of you know your this kind of word around enterprise leader and and how you evolved and so one of the things I've seen in the sector over the years and one of the things our listeners talk about is you know when they see someone like you they un- they want to understand how someone like you has navigated your way in transition from being almost a functional leader to a more kind of enterprise leader where you might have been responsible for say business development or commercial finance or something and now you lead an entire organization so with that in mind do you mind talking about your journey to becoming an enterprise leader and and maybe some of the lessons that you've learned along the way i mean again i think here is the problem solving skills this is one of the reasons why i i really thought the engineering training was was terrific early on and then working for great companies like Pfizer and Merck, where they really empower folks early in their career to get involved and, and solve problems and learn from people that are that are doing that well. But I think most executives w- would tell you that you're going to run into challenges. No, no, almost no business is a straight line to success. And so your ability to learn, listen, ask the right questions is something that's super important, but probably equally important, and you touched on kind of evolving into an enterprise leader, is knowing what you don't know. And and I think, you know, we we hear people tell us all the time, the only stupid question is the one that you don't ask. That's really important to have confidence when you go into uh, a career, your career, and and start off is being comfortable not knowing the answer and being comfortable asking questions. Because the more you 
ask those questions that that you're not sure of the answer that's the way you learn that that's how you're gonna you're gonna be able to to fill that that toolbox as i say as you as you go along and the other thing that it gets you comfortable with is as you do step into the enterprise leadership role is you're not going to know everything you know i look back at the ceos you know roy Bagelos was a scientist right he was an r d guy and you know, he, but he surrounded himself with incredible people in functional areas where he wasn't an expert. You know, Mike Ball was a commercial leader. You know, he did this. He did the same thing. He surrounded himself with, with, with people that he could trust in those other areas. But the other thing that those leaders did is they didn't just accept the fact that that those folks were the experts. They still stayed in there. They learned. They asked questions. They stayed engaged in those other parts of the business so that they built their expertise and continued to fill their toolbox as they went along and stayed very interested in those other parts of the business because it's very easy to get drawn into the area that you know and focus on it. And then you get distracted away from some of the other key parts of the business that are going to be really important for you. <laughs> I'm absolutely nodding away here, uh, Matt, to the answer to that question, because I think it's a really terrific piece of advice that you've just shared. And I certainly encourage our listener to rewind back it and listen to that. And it's the type of thing I certainly seem to my team all the time. It's like, don't be afraid to ask the question. And it doesn't, you know, <laughs> no matter if it makes you uh, look dumb because you, you just don't know what you don't know. So I think it's a, a really, really great point. And Matt, you talked briefly, uh, you know, before your move to Abzina, I just wanted to underline the point around your time at GSK and, you know, going through tough times as a business and almost, uh, you know, feeling that it was a bit of a phoenix from the flames, uh, you know, that's almost that CDMO business appeared from GSK. As you reflect back on your time now, um, that seems quite an innovative thing to do at the time. You know, embedded CDMOs are pretty common in the industry to do, but at the time, you know, it, that was relatively unheard of. So what was it like being at GSK and, and going through that process and, you know, in transforming that business? Um, you know, I imagine it was a, a difficult thing and people thinking it was maybe a terrible idea and it's not going to work, but, you know, when you know, not a CDMO, you're a pharma business, but it'd be great to get your take on what, what that journey was like. Yeah, it was hard because there were a lot of people that didn't want to do it, right? So, you know, and there's lots of reasons not to do it is, you know, risk is one of them. Big pharma has a tendency to be less risk tolerant. And and so getting into a space that they're uncertain of, you know, they're used to driving, you know, 90, 95% margins on brand new, brand new drugs that are being released. And that's where their bread and butter is, R&D. And that's what they're focused on. To go in and convince the senior executives of the organization and the folks that were sitting around the executive leadership team that this was worth the effort to put into it. And and being able to come up with a, a story, if you will, around why this would be good for the company beyond making money in the CDMO space is the ability to learn, the ability to stand up the organization, the ability to ready a facility for when our R&D pipeline does come through. You know, interestingly enough, it was more about those things than it was about all the money that we made in the CDMO space. And so really being 
I'll say astute enough to understand what was going to resonate with the executive leaders within GSK beyond, hey, we've got a financial problem with a facility that we built that we don't have anything to put in, was the key to success in terms of what I would say selling them on the idea. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about, Ramon, is as you go up in the organization and, and, you know, you know, whether it's at the manager level or director level or, or you get into the vice president level and beyond is you constantly have to be able to, and, you know, I'll put it in air quotes, sell your ideas to folks. And so you have to be comfortable with thinking about beyond why you think it's a good idea. What are other people's perspectives walking into the room? And then how are you going to convince them that this is the right direction for the organization and why that's going to be a good decision beyond just your perspective, right? I mean, if I had walked in there and said, look, this gives us an opportunity to make, you know, 40 or $50 million, that's a lot of money. But in an organization like GSK, they're also going to lay out all the downsides, right? What are all the risks that could occur and could not go the right direction if, if we step into this space? And so really making sure that you, you think through what, what are the things that are going to resonate to others that are sitting around the table and what are their perspectives going to be as they walk in the room so that you can make sure you're ready to address those on the front end. Great to get your perspective on that, Matt. And it kind of brings me nicely on uh, to the theme of kind of risk and reward and ultimately your decision to come to Abzina because, you know, from the outside, uh, you know, a guy that's been there and done it. And I suspect you could have taken on a million roles out there in the sector and given your incredible experience and the success that you've had along the way. So what was it, uh, what was that temptation like? And, you know, I'm sure you had the opportunity to kind of hang up your boots and kick back on the beach. <laughs> uh, or was there just something about the Abzina opportunity that really resonated with you and brought you back to, you know, into a CDMO role? Yeah, I would say two things there. First, there's only one thing that I've failed at when I look back and really look carefully and go, you know, I truly failed at this. And that was retirement. I tried to retire <laughs> I, tr- I, tr- I tried to retire twice. I was not good at it. But my view is there's only so much golf and fishing and things like that that you can do. And I just felt like I had a lot more more to give, you know, back to why I sort of started in in this space was to help people. The reason that I took the Abzina role and, and what, when I looked at, at the role and had a conversation with the board is really a- around the oncology side of things. Now, that's not all we do. Um, we do lots of other things other other than the, the oncology space. But when I first looked at it, it was this antibody drug conjugate. It's a new, um, newer type of, of oncology treatments that you know are much more targeted, much better treated, give patients a much better opportunity for a better outcome and I'm just really excited about the field. You know, when I think about why I get up every day and what gets me excited, it's to help patients. And I just looked at this and said, with the number of customers and partners that we're working with, this is something that really would allow me to make a difference. The other reason for Abzina is I didn't want to go work for 
somebody big. You know, I, I want to go work. I wanted to go work for a company where, you know, we've got 20 to 25 main important customers. I get to know them. I get to know their products. I get to know the science and what they're trying to do. That to me is, is what really separates Abzina from going and taking on a big job with, with one of the other, uh, let's call it much larger, whether it's CDMOs or, or big pharma players. Yeah, I, I love the fact that I, I can really get personally involved and help to get these things over the line. And that's one of the things that you know, I'm, I'm bringing to Abzina is that, that very customer-focused, let us engage with you, let us really understand what you're trying to accomplish and let's make sure we execute really well for you so that you can you can get these drugs into a clinical setting and ultimately approved so that uh, we can bring better medicines to patients over the course of the next decade. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. And I suppose ultimately, Matt, that's a great reason not to retire. And I think uh, I'm joined by our listener here and Dean. I'm very grateful that you are still in the sector and, and looking to make an impact. And obviously, as of Zena, um, you know, you can, and it's linked to your personal situation that you mentioned before and being able to build a legacy for your life and your family and obviously the business of Zena by impacting cancer patients to the future. And if any of our listeners have not come across Abzina or don't know much about them as an organization, can you mind just painting a picture of the business in terms of size and scale and location and, and what types of areas that you focus on? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So it, it really interesting C- CDMO business, so contract manufacturing and development organization. We really specialize in bioconjugates and biologics. We know that biopharm and biotech development companies face lots of hurdles getting their candidates from development through commercial manufacturing. We've got advanced facilities in the UK and the US and and we're we're set up to really bring the latest treatments through early stage discovery all the way through development. So we consider ourselves an IND enabling organization is is what we do. Um, we've got a, an amazing scientific team, lots of PhDs with with tons of expertise in in that bioconjugation, biopharma development experience. And we really work closely with our customers. What separates us from anybody else is we work really closely to determine the best path forward for the program and the the company's specific needs. And, you know, we're, we're going to bring our scientific expertise. One of the great things about working with us is you get access to the senior executives of the team, our chief technical officer, our chief scientific officer, myself, you know, our top scientists are going to be working on every program because we're, we're not, you know, one of the, one of the giant guys who's got literally thousands of customers and you, you never get a chance to talk to the senior senior executives. And so we we really pride ourselves in being able to bring a novel solution to the table and turn the ideas that people have into action. So our our business is we've we've got our 
call it discovery, uh, lead discovery uh, operation in Cambridge in the UK. And, and we do everything from design through candidate selection and cell line development there. Uh, the team really has a, a super understanding of the complexity around drug design and development, the risks and potential areas and pitfalls that we've seen happen to others. Um, and, and we really work with, with partners to make sure that, that attrition rates are kept down because the right decisions are being made along the way. So terrific depth and breadth of scientific expertise there from a technical standpoint uh, around the drug development side. And we've got some of the best scientists who really underpin the top, their molecular biology, chemistry, cell expression capabilities. And we do all the analytical side as well. So it's a one-stop shop from that regard. And do the, the bioassay expertise is very strong, et cetera, that, that we can bring to the party. And then from there, so with the discovery part is in Cambridge and a lot of the development side. Then we've got a facility in San Diego that does up to, to does has all the process development, analytical method qualification for the monoclonal manufacturing. So we can do biologics in that facility that again could support ADCs, but could support other programs as well. We go up to 2,000 liter scale, couple suites. It's all single use technology in that facility as well. And then we've got a facility in Bristol, PA, where the Center of Excellence for Bioconjugation, Complex Chemistry Development and Manufacturing, we can handle highly potent compounds there. So this, you should think about kind of a one-stop shop. We can do fully integrated programs for people. We have some people that bring us their monoclonal and want us to do the chemistry side, payload linker side, et cetera. For them, we have other folks that that bring that payload linker component and and we do the the monoclonal side. We have some folks that come to us and just want us to help them with with analytical development or early discovery side of things. So, but the way to think about Abzina is really we're your IND enabling team. And, and we will work with you carefully to get that IND stood up, to get your material made and into the, into the clinic so that you can execute on, on the phase one and two um, activities that you've got. And then beyond that, we're, we're willing to work with, with folks to go further and, and do the commercial side of things as well. We have primarily stayed in the phase one and two space up until this point, but we are we are starting to prepare our facilities and our teams to be able to go phase three and commercial now. Yeah, I really love your point there, Matt, around kind of scientific expertise. And I'd certainly point our listener towards a former episode. Um, it was episode 52, actually, where uh, Louise Duffy, who was part of the uh, kind of scientific team at Abzina, was on. So she gives a great perspective and brings some of that to life a little bit more and just I suppose reflecting on you and some of the roles that you're involved with Matt I think one of my observations was the various board roles that you have played and I, and I noticed that Peter Bigelow who is a, a good friend and a former guest and a, and a fan of the show was also you know is, is part of the Obzina board and for some of our listeners you know they often are not at a board level and kind of probably sit there and wonder, well, what goes on 
in a board meeting, what goes on, you know, what do the different people around the table do and what role do they play? Can you paint a picture of what actually happens in the context of obviously the sector that we work with, uh, you know, work within and what goes on at, at a board meeting typically? Yeah, I, I, so I would tie back to you can never know everything, you know, as good as you get at this stuff with 30 years of experience. You know, Peter's had a different journey than I've had. Dennis Fenton's on our board has had a different journey than I've had. Michelle Dips on our board had a different journey, et cetera. Jeff Glass, he's our chairman. And so the thing I tell everybody about a really strong board is, you should look around that table and be able to leverage the expertise, a strong group of people that understand your business, but also bring different perspectives than you have. And, you know, when I walk into the board meetings as the CEO of the company and, you know, when the senior leadership team comes in and we walk through our strategy and our game plan, everything from you know, the commercial strategy, the financial strategy, where we're going from a business development standpoint, you know, where some of our pain points are. The key thing is to go in and be extremely open and listen. Um, listen carefully, learn as much as you can, because those folks have amazing experience that you can leverage. And so the board's there from that point of view. A good board is there from that point of view to be able to lean on in that regard they're also there from a governance standpoint. At the end of the day, we're charged with a significant amount of money that we're responsible for being good stewards of. And the board is responsible for ensuring that that stewardship is occurring. So, you know, having a strong audit committee, making sure that there's oversight in terms of the way the resources of the company are being used make sure that there's oversight from a people standpoint in the culture and the way people are are being treated underneath the organization. You know, those are also very important roles for the board to make sure that they stay engaged enough in the business that they understand how things are are operating and if there are adjustments made because at the end of the day where I've seen companies get into trouble is you know, CEOs that go off and do some of these things. We've all read the stories in the news and, you know, the board wasn't aware, didn't have good visibility. And and then then they've got a crisis on their hands that needs to be remedied. It's, it's really the board's job tool to help avoid those crises and make sure that, th- that they're staying very closely engaged in the business so that there's a good outcome, both for investors and, you know, in our case, for patients equally. Thanks for that. And I, and I think, I really think it helps actually highlight the role of the board and how it all works uh, within a business like yours. And I think I, I really resonate with what you said there in terms of the different perspectives piece. And it's almost like having a different set of eyes and ears out there looking at the market and bringing those perspectives to you as the CEO. So thanks for sharing that. And so let's move to the final kind of stage of today's interview. And, uh, you know, in researching the podcast, uh, I noticed uh, the kind of Abzina strapline or purpose line on the website around moving medicine forward, which I think is a, a really lovely and line and very fitting with a lot of the conversation that we've had today. Am I, if you think about that as a concept in terms of moving medicine forward through the lens of what's going on in the market today at the minute? And at the time of recording, obviously the biotech sector has taken a bit of beating from a funding 
perspective and obviously you know coming off the back of covid and the impact that's having on the sector as well in this kind of post pandemic world and, and obviously vaccine supplies is not as uh, you know dominating uh, as it was in addition to all the other macro factors so talk to us about the challenges that your organization faces in this current market environment and but at the same time you know the innovation opportunities to you know that you see moving forward to ultimately you know support clients from Abzina's perspective and indeed move medicines forward yeah and i think you know you asked me earlier why i why i joined this job i mean the good news in the adc space is we're at the forefront of one of the really the most advanced and and it's still evolving um branches of drug development is we're pushing with the opportunities involving ADCs and bioconjugation forward. And that's where we're really at our best. You know, we've got the capability to do lots of other things, but where you're seeing the biotech market get really tough right now. And, you know, I'm involved in some of these companies and have good friends that are leading them is spaces like gene therapy, where they're going after rare disease the markets aren't quite as big. The technology is moving a little bit slower and it's crowded and they're having a hard time raising capital. You know, we're seeing it on companies that are publicly traded and as well as um, companies that are private. They're just really having a hard time raising the, the capital required to bring some of these gene therapy programs forward. So that's an area certainly now luckily for us that's not a huge part of our business you know we do do some method development work for those folks and so you know we're certainly impacted some there the good news for us is the adc space is being pretty well funded right now because people really see a huge promise in terms of this technology and so you know the business environment for us in terms of opportunities is still very very strong and so we haven't been as impacted. You know, that said is the markets are are definitely tightening. And so we've seen it over the course of, of the last year or two. People are being much more careful about the the amount of money that they commit and when they commit it. And, you know, the challenge with that is when you start to back end load some of these things like manufacturing the products that are required for clinical trials is you you push risk onto the program because you if you do it soon if you can move it forward and do it a little earlier um you're able to not have that on the critical path but unfortunately it's a fairly large spend you know as you look at small biotech companies to manufacture these drugs you know when you look at their overall budgets and and get the ind fully stood up etc and so you know that that piece of it we're seeing folks kind of push work more towards the back end of the program, which means, you know, in development, there's risk because you're needing to figure things out. If it was easy, basically anybody could do it. Um, and so the development nature of it by by pushing these things back makes the timelines tighter. And it, and it means there's not a lot of room for for you to to make a mistake or have a delay or, or have an issue, which is one of the reasons why we like folks coming to us, working with us, because, you know, again, we handle a select number of programs where they get our full attention. 
and you know my full attention and and the technical teams full attention to make sure that we execute successfully for those those individuals and i think that's a great segue into something i've been dying to ask you about giving your varied experience in the sector um i think you strike me as someone uh, that you know that can help take a business to the a next level and turn around a business and you know, help businesses transform and really make an impact in the sector. And obviously, you've had the fortune of spending a huge amount of time in different parts of the ecosystem, you know, on the drug development side, on the big pharma side, and of course, the CDMO side as well. Um, so with that in mind, you know, if you could make one change in the sector that we operate, Matt, what would that be? Oh, I think if I could make one change, it would be with the regulatory agencies and really around harmonization. I think when you look at bringing drugs to market, the amount of money that is spent on the fact that if you wanted to bring a medicine to the US, to the UK, to Europe, to Asia, you've got to deal with, to Australia, you've got to deal with 7, 10, 15 different regulatory agencies, not harmonized in terms of what their expectations are, audits from all of them. It just adds an unbelievable cost burden. If the regulatory agencies could get harmonized and trust each other that the MHRA is going to do as good a job as the FDA, as good a job as as the EU, as the as some of the regulatory agencies in Asia, as the Australians, etc. It would take a tremendous cost burden off of folks as they were bringing these programs through to market globally. So you know, there's been some movement in this direction, but not enough. And, you know, this is an area that the world continues to spend a tremendous amount of money, time, and resource on things that, frankly, add very limited value. I I think, you know, if I can throw a second one in there, you know, this supply chain component around generic medicines, our political system needs to really think carefully about this. I mean, we can't make antibiotics today in the United States. Every single antibiotic that I'm aware of has raw materials sourced that come from China. You know, the political landscape today is, and the way that, frankly, insurance companies and and drug companies, uh, or not drug companies, insurance companies, and the FDA has gone after the U.S. generics manufacturers has driven so much of our supply chain offshore that it should be, frankly, terrifying to Americans. And you know, we ha- I have a very close personal friend who's an oncology patient, and they can't get their oncology meds because they're made outside the United States. There's a su- significant supply chain issue there that is you know, driven by the fact that this was this medicine used to be made here in the U.S., was pushed pushed offshore for cost reasons. And now we're in a situation where somebody who's in their 30s, who's got cancer, 
can't get a basic first-line chemotherapy medicine that's required for their treatment, that should be something that the politicians, that the government is really pushing to change. I know that's probably you know something that is a little too political for the podcast, but it's something that I'm super passionate about. And I think it's something that that is is got to be changed in order for uh, for us to make sure that the healthcare system stays strong. Well, I think that's a really, I suppose, poignant point that Matt has picked up on there in terms of uh, the trend around onshoring and you know the, the the need potentially to bring key raw material back into uh, North America and Europe, especially given the over reliance on different countries and it was very uh, it was a topic that came up again and again obviously during the pandemic and uh, i suppose my follow-up question to that matt is you know you know this kind of trend around onshoring you know for a couple of years ago are you are you really seeing any movement is it just a kind of a, a trend that the media talk about but are you actually seeing it and uh, i suppose you know linked to that you know off the back of the pandemic have we really learned our lessons and learned from the past and or are we finding ourselves back in the same kind of slightly more complacent situation that we were a few years ago where we are relying on different nations and third parties, you know, countries to bring in the raw materials and uh, I appreciate cost is a big part of this as well. Yeah, I, I haven't seen a, a, enough of a change. I would say there's some, I think on the innovator side, you know, the big pharma companies innovating, they're being really strategic about this. I think, you know, the medicines that have already gone generic, and remember, you know, there's probably 85, 90% of the medicines that are prescribed that are already generic. And so there's not a big push to get those back onshore. And I agree with you, it's the US and Europe um, and probably Australia, right? I mean, you you know, you put it in, in places where we've got stable economies, there's a strong partnership and connection there. And we should be thinking carefully through legislation to force that, right? We should force it through, look, 50%, 70% of these need to be made in the US It's strate- or in, in those locations, US, Europe, Australia. You have to source from there. And if you can't show that the whole supply chain is sourced from there, you know, we're not, the insurance companies aren't going to pay for it. If we don't do something through legislation, I'm afraid that you know, companies are going to do what companies do in in a free market environment is they're going to go to the lowest cost. And if you leave if you leave everybody to just say, "Hey, this is pure cost," and nobody does anything politically to force this, we're going to continue to be in the same situation. and 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 it concerns me for patients. You know, that's why I bring it up. And I'm glad you did. Uh, and I think it's a subject and a topic that's not going to go away anytime soon. And I think our role here on the podcast is to keep uh, these slightly more contentious topics live because they are important and, um, you know, and ultimately impact businesses, economies, and patients uh, across the globe. Matt, honestly, what an absolute pleasure it's been to have you on the podcast. It's been, yeah, and thank you for so, making so much time and being so open and honest and sharing your experience. Uh, and I hope our list, listener has taken huge amount away both in terms of uh, your leadership experience and learnings and obviously some of the insights that you're able to share on the sector and just what's happening right now 
My pleasure. Thank you, Ramon, for having me and uh, appreciated the time and, and look forward to staying in touch. So there you have it. That was Matt Stober, Chief Executive Officer at Abzina. What uh, a great storyteller and fabulous background Matt has. Uh, some of the kind of reflections that I've got of today's episode that I thought I'd share with you. I mean, it's interesting to hear how that GSK, GSK CDMO business came about. Uh, I didn't know that that business uh, was created off the back of some kind of R&D portfolio failures and the reason for doing it ultimately led to having that kind of pipeline ready facility, which is uh, which is an interesting insight that I suspect was not known by everyone. Um, one thing I thought was particularly noteworthy was Matt talking about that kind of transition from a functional leader to an enterprise one and then ultimately being part of a board. I'm sure many of you in your roles in your organization are on that journey. You may have started with a technical role and then into commercial and then, you know, having wider responsibilities. So good to get his thoughts on his journey of how he's kind of navigated that change. I loved what he said when he talked about retirement and his failure at retirement and then obviously his personal story uh, relating to his father uh, you know, brought him back ultimately to the CDMO space at Abzina in his personal kind of fight against uh, you know, uh, cancer, which I think is uh, you know, a very noble kind of thing to do. And you know some of the things that I picked up on, um, you know, his, his views at the end were were you know passionate clearly around you know the need for legislative change in the regulators and you know, greater harmonisation across the regulators. And I think that's been mentioned in the past before. And you know my take on that is it you know we've seen that work pretty well when COVID came about and everything was kind of all the ducks was lined up and there was a lot of collaboration between different regulatory body so it was interesting kind of having him uh, kind of talking that talking about that as well so yeah i mean i really hope you've enjoyed today's interview as always you know if you liked it then you know like it share it and uh, maybe give us a kind rating on on the podcast thanks to my team as always for helping us uh, put this together and we will no doubt see you soon hi again Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website, Molecule to Market Pod or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecules Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.